0: to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Starr, a young adult literature podcast, their filmic adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. All right, all right, all right. And we are <laughs> excited. We've both had difficult weeks that are being elevated by this queer teen romance that we are talking about.
1: This was the exact right book for a terrible week
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. and a good movie as well
1: it was a good movie i think they're very different er than they needed to be but i enjoyed both thoroughly and the podcast is over we're done
0: (laughs) (laughs) congratulations everyone you can now go home (laughs) yay (laughs) yes but first do you have any news that you want to share
1: so I don't have new news, but I was hoping I could use my news today to talk about a different Becky Albertalli book. So am I allowed to do that?
0: Oh, are you going to do Leah on the come up or are you going to do what if it's us?
1: I'm going to do Leah on the offbeat. Damn it.
0: <laughs> you know, I try to do my homework and it just doesn't come together. And then I wonder why do I do it at all?
1: <laughs> Sorry, let's just call this part. Brenda talks about books she likes until we get to the topic of the podcast. Fair enough. <laughs> um, I did want to mention it though, because we're going to talk about Simon versus the homi- Homo sapiens agenda today, and it's worth taking a look at Leah on the Offbeat. It's sort of a sequel, kind of in that Simon's best friend Leah, who is a wonderful character in the book and kind of underused in the movie. Mm-hmm. She's the focus of Leah on the Offbeat, obviously. You can tell from the title, and um, at the end of Simon versus the Homo Sapien's agenda, you find out that Leah has been in a band. And Mm -hmm. so that's sort of where the book starts, is with Leah's band, where she's the drummer. And it's just, it's a really great, another coming-of-age story. It's not anything, I don't think, particularly groundbreaking, Mm -hmm. but it's lovely. It's another sort of sexuality awakening story. Leah's bisexual and nobody knows except her mom. So... Simon versus the Homo Sapiens agenda takes place during their junior year and Leah on the offbeat takes place in their senior year. So they're coming up with going to college and Leah is poorer than her other friends, so she has this kind of added complication of not being sure she's going to be able to pay for it and prom and being bisexual and not sure how she's going to deal with that. So a lot of the similar coming-of-age themes, but one reason why I wanted to foreground it before we talk about the book and film today is that one of my disappointments in the film is that they make Leah thin and Leah's not thin like Leah's a fat girl in the book and it's really important to her sense of herself and how she relates to the people around her and that is very much central to Leah on the offbeat and so if that's kind of thing that disappoints you too (laughs) then going and checking out Leah on the offbeat and getting to read her story is really worthwhile.
0: Mm-hmm. And she's just got such a different kind of perspective, too. Like, in doing the research for this episode, there were a number of questions posed to both Becky Albertalli, as well as Greg Berlanti, the director of the film, as to whether or not there would be sequels to mm. these respective texts. And, you know, Becky was like, well, I've got this Jared cinematic universe book that's coming out about Leah. And Greg Berlanti was like, I don't know, it kind of depends on box office grosses, but I think the impression I got from both of them was Love, Simon is a standalone story because nobody wants to touch what happens at the end of these respective texts. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think Leah proves that there is more stories to be told from different kinds of perspectives and they can, you know, circumnavigate around the other stories so that you're still getting that dose of Simon and Bram if you want them, but there's somebody else's story that deserves to be told.
1: And I think ultimately that's — I mean we'll talk about this more — but I love the film, but that's my core disappointment with it is that by choosing the Leah that they chose for the film, they kind of can't make Leah on the offbeat. Like it's impossible to tell that story with that actress and so that's sad for me because i really like leah she's sarcastic and snarky and cynical and all the ways that sometimes simon is almost a bit much in his Mm -hmm. kind of puppy dogness she undercuts in a way that's really refreshing in the book yeah yeah so leah on the offbeat it came out in 2018 so i think it's out in paperback now but maybe just recently it's worth your time
0: i'm excited i will not lie the minute that i finished love simon i immediately put it onto my, like, top of priority library list.
1: Yay!
0: Yeah, I think it's also just that I love Becky Albertelli's voice. Because the reason I asked you if you were thinking of doing What If It's Us is because I also just read that maybe a couple months ago.
1: Yes. Yeah, I remember when you read that.
0: And I really, really liked it. It's a, a writing style that works very very well for me i mm-hmm. like the kinds of stories that she's telling obviously i have a vested interest in the types of narratives and the types of characters she's dealing with yeah for me it's kind of like a warm blanket <laughs>
1: yes <gonna> lie. <laughs> it's so true her other book the upside of unrequited might be a fun one for us to think about in one of our kind of alternate format episodes because it's sort of loosely inspired by both emma and clueless
0: oh fun okay and it Because that's about Abby's cousin, right? Yeah, it's about Abby's
1: cousin, Molly. But totally different universe because it takes place in D.C. and sort of the world that Abby has come from. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Did you do any homework? I did. Yay!
0: I'm proud of you. It's fun because I did my homework, but I also got to cheat because (laughs) it's part of my day job, freelance writing. I get invited to advance press screenings of different films. Nice. So there's actually a film that the time of this recording has not come out. By the time this episode drops, will have come out. It's called Five Feet Apart, and Ooh. it's a sick-lit film. I thought Ooh. it was an adaptation, so I thought we were going to be able to discuss it in greater detail, but it turns out it's actually an original text, which has then been novelized. So if we wanted to do the reverse format, we could always Ooh. watch the movie and read the novelization later.
1: We should at some point talk about novelizations, because there's a lot of them in YA, and I find them profoundly weird as a genre.
0: I've never understood novelizations. <laughs> I'll be honest. I read them a lot when I was a kid. So maybe, yeah, yeah there is something to discuss there. But as an adult, I'm just like,
1: no, <laughs> I'll read a book book. Thank you. <laughs> yeah,
0: I don't know. <laughs> um, okay, so anyway, so this film is about two kids with cystic fibrosis. Ooh. And the main character is Stella. She's a nearly adult teenager who's checking back into the hospital for a long-term stay. She calls it a tune-up, and she's obviously been there a number of times because the nurses know her, the doctor knows her. She's got a best friend named Poe, and they are non-sexual friends because Poe is queer. And the whole thing is about how she needs to have total control over her life because her health is directly tied to her survival. And it's kind of the only thing that she has control over, which is not unlike Love, Simon, in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. But in her case, it's all about her medical regime. So she has to take pills. She has to exercise. She has to put on a vest that will shake the fluid out of her lungs Mm. because her lungs are, well, she calls them sucky Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: she's on the transplant list and the idea is that if she can get new lungs she'll get five more years of life and for her that's a really big deal because she's been told that she's going to die for as long as she can remember so of course because this is ya there's a new boy on the floor (laughs) played by cole Sprouse. so he's from riverdale he plays jughead
1: i'm weird i'm a weirdo joe i'm weird
0: hmm oh Oh,
1: the the jughead meme i'm weird i'm a weirdo (laughs) Yes, a
0: beautiful weirdo. (laughs) So he looks exactly the same as Jughead does, which is very visually confusing a lot of times. I wanted to remark a lot about the clothes, but then I realized they're wearing a lot of sweatpants and just, you know, warm layered clothing because they're probably very cold because they're... I wanted to use the word emaciated, but they're not actually emaciated. They're just very thin because, of course, they have to eat so much calories to stay healthy. Right. Long story short... They have a meet-cute. He is not taking his health very seriously. She is, so they make a deal that she will help him to stay true to what they're supposed to do if he can draw her because he is a graphic artist. Cool. And of course, they fall in love, but theirs is a romance that can't be. The title comes from the idea that patients who are suffering from cystic fibrosis can't be closer than six feet because they each have their own unique kind of germs. And if they give them to one of the other ones, that could put them at such a health risk that they would have to be removed from the transplant list or it could kill them.
1: Oh man, okay. So
0: the idea is that by agreeing to fall in love and to try to make their relationship work, that they're going to steal a foot back from the disease and they will only remain five feet apart. So it's very sweet. It's got a certain amount of cliched components to it. It's very conventional. If you're a fan of the kind of sick romance tragedy, this is going to be bread and butter for you. I will say I really aggressively disliked the end of the film. I found it really emotionally manipulative in... Not oh. a good way. Oh, I don't. And like that. I was frustrated with the screenwriters for leaning into this, particularly when I found out it wasn't an adaptation. So they only have themselves to blame. It really <laughs> bothered me. But with that said, I would still recommend the film. I'd probably still rate it about a three and a half out of five.
1: Okay, cool. Yeah. It sounds like something I would like when it comes on Netflix. I definitely think so. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay.
0: Okay. So main event
1: time. Main event time. I'm gonna. I was about to say to you, Joe, I'm going to jump right into the plot without telling you that I'm going to do the plot. <laughs> <laughs> I really, how did
0: that work out for you?
1: You know, I just, I feel like we don't get enough feedback about how I am a broadcast natural.
0: Right. Yes. <laughs> you've got a voice for radio. You've got a laugh for radio.
1: <laughs> but sometimes your timing is a good for radio. Oh, Look at me. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so I'm going to do the plot now.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay, you really so... caught me off guard there. <laughs>
1: So Simon vs. the Homo Sapiens Agenda is a 2015 young adult novel by Becky Albertalli. We're back in Brenna's happy place in Mm -hmm. that this is realist, issue-centered YA. It is why I get up in the morning with lots of romance, lots of kissing. This is why I get up. I like it. So I was already presupposed to like this book before I even read it for the first time. Mm -hmm. And I think I should admit that up front. But I do think Becky Albertelli is a particularly gifted YA writer, so we'll talk about that a fair amount, I think. But Mm -hmm. the plot itself is about Simon Spear, who's a closeted 16-year-old junior in high school. He's figured out that he's gay. He's known for a few years, but no one else knows. He hasn't told his family. He hasn't told his close friends. They live in a suburb of Atlanta that's called Shady Creek. And... Shady Creek is a strange high school where the two most popular things to do seem to be play soccer or be in the school musical. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Which it's I like really a dream. Enjoyed. <laughs> It's like a dream. <laughs> it's true. Anyway, so there's this secret Tumblr where students from the school post anonymously. Creek Secrets. Creek Secrets.tumblr.com. And so one day someone at school posts this thing about how he has a secret he's gay and he feels like no one in the world understands him and so Simon's like I'm gonna write back to that guy because that's how I feel too and they strike up a correspondence um Simon calls himself Jacques in their email correspondence which is a play on Simon Says in French Jacques a D and the mysterious boy who's writing back to him uses the pseudonym Blue and they are writing back and forth and simon is feeling like he has this person who really understands him and who he can kind of be a part of himself with that he can't be with anyone else when martin the uh, martin. villain sort of <laughs> of <laughs> the, the piece,
0: antagonist
1: the antagonist martin logs into gmail After um, Simon one day in the computer labs at school and Simon has not logged out and Martin sees all of these emails and he screenshots them and tells Simon that he's going to blackmail him. He wants Simon to help him get close to Simon's friend Abby and if he doesn't he will release all of these emails to the whole school.
0: Though it should be clarified that Martin at no point says the word
1: blackmail. No, in fact, he works really hard to not say blackmail. Simon says, are you blackmailing me? And he says things like, I just feel like we could help each other out. I'm a mm-hmm. sneezy troll man.
0: You have so many friends. Why shouldn't I have friends? Friends yeah. like Abby. It's not creepy.
1: He's a perfect example of an entitled white guy, <laughs> right?
0: Ooh, I was wondering how long it would take us to say <laughs> the word entitlement or privilege.
1: <laughs> well, he does, right? He feels oh, like— yes. Even though he has no personality, discernibly, he feels like he's entitled to Simon's entire social world, and he Mm -hmm. especially feels like he's entitled to closeness with Abby, regardless of what Abby really wants. And we'll get into all of that. And I think the book is much more nuanced and complicated in the way it handles it than the film, for obvious reasons. So Simon's social world consists of Blue, obviously, and Martin on the periphery. But more importantly, his three best friends are Nick and Leah, who he's been close with forever, Mm -hmm. Um, and then Abby, who's recently moved to town. And they form kind of a little foursome of friends. They're all involved in the school musical, except Nick, I guess he plays soccer. And
0: And who does he play soccer with?
1: He plays soccer with, oh, a boy named Bram. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't say anything about that, did I? Not yet. So, (laughs) throughout the book, Simon is trying to guess who Blue might be, and there are a number of potential people, but really the reveal at the end, spoiler alert, is that handsome soccer boy Bram is the secret Blue. Mm -hmm. And really what we get over the course of the narrative is Simon and Bram being sort of empowering forces in each other's lives to come out to the people around them, to be able to be more whole versions of themselves. And then ultimately, at the very end, we get kissing. Yay, kissing. Oh, I didn't talk about Simon's family. He's got ideal parents.
0: Right. Yeah, the bingo card is flashing bright. (laughs) It
1: really is. His mom is a psychologist. His dad just like Loves him.
0: I was gonna say, do we even know what the dad does? It's no, that I don't think we do.
1: What's interesting is we get a little bit of arc for the dad. He's kind of got some like casual homophobia in his jokes and the way he approaches the world and that's one of the things that makes Simon a little bit trepidatious about coming out. And so his father has to kind of learn to be a good dad to a different kind of kid than he thought he had. And he does. He has an older sister named Alice who's away at college but frequently pops back in. And he has a younger sister, Nora, who I really love. I think she's a great character in the book. Yes. Yes.
0: She's like his sounding board.
1: But she's super quiet and one of the things that comes about through all this for Simon is that he realizes that by talking to Bram, he realizes what it is to be like a good listener and a good friend. Mm -hmm. And it's through that relationship with Bram that he realizes, oh, I don't actually know like why Leah's parents are divorced. I don't know why Abby moved to Atlanta from D.C. I don't know why my sister is so quiet or what she does for a social life. And so what's nice is that Simon's growth is not just around being a queer kid and him. coming out it's not just about him it's about his interactions with the world around him and like just being a less self-involved teen and a more engaged friend which i kind of love as a central message to the book as well,
0: well and for me that also really ties in to the pen name the gnome de plume that he ends up selecting for himself right because The name at its basic point is very centrally focused on one person, right? It's about Simon saying. It's all about Simon. But the truth is, is that by the end of the book, he's learned to let go of that. And he's really more about checking out and listening to other people. Like he's opened up his worldview.
1: And I think too, like... Simon Says is about Simon being in control, right? And he likes being in control of his universe. And I think that a lot of what happens to him, which is sometimes really traumatic, like being blackmailed the way he is and and the ownership that Martin feels over like his friend group and stuff, through all of that, Simon has to learn how to be okay with losing a little bit of control.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was interesting to me too that the book begins with the conflict right off the bat. So the book opens with Martin confronting Simon and saying, hey, I know your secret and now we're going to do this. So before we even really get to know who Simon is, we're already into this bit of confrontation mode. But I think that it helps us to understand who Simon is and why he maybe hasn't come out yet. Mm -hmm. And it's him realizing that his secret is at risk that prompts him to start paying closer attention to other people because he's now looking not just for signs about whether or not people know he's gay, but also signs of who Blue is. So the letters serve a double function in that way.
1: Definitely. And I, we didn't say this in the plot, but Martin does eventually go through with the threat. Martin outs Simon on Creek Secrets on Christmas Eve. And so Simon is forced into having to out himself to his family and he's forced into having to deal with the consequences. One thing that the book I think does really well is Simon becomes the target of like homophobic bullying at school after this happens. Mm-hmm. The film does it too, but I think well, we'll talk about it when we talk about the film, but in the book in particular, Martin's defense of himself is that like he didn't think people were still homophobic, like he didn't think people acted like that. And it's a wake-up call for him as well. Like I think Martin, as much as I don't like him, Martin learns not to center himself and his own needs over the course of the narrative as well, which one of the things I like about the book is that no one in this novel is irredeemable. And no one in this novel gets away without having an arc of development of their own really
0: mm-hmm. because Martin's blackmail scheme ultimately forces Simon to do a bunch of things that he himself is not proud of and it's nice that in the book that doesn't go unaddressed so yes some of the things that Martin makes him well quote-unquote makes him mm-hmm. do right mm-hmm. at the end of the day it is Simon's choice to say
1: my secret is more important than my friends yes mm-hmm.
0: Which I think is really interesting because Simon makes it very clear that there's no shame Mm -hmm. for him associated Mm -hmm. with being gay. No. It's just that he's not ready for his life to change. Mm -hmm. And that's really what the book is all about, right? It's about him coming to grips with the idea that your life can change and it doesn't have to be bad and it doesn't have to be that different.
1: And you don't always get to decide. And like the thing that worries him is, you know, like will his friendship with Leah change? Will his friendship with Nick change? Hmm. And like Yes, but they will also change by (laughs) virtue of the fact that you're going to get older and go to college and things are going to be different, right? That sort of underscores a lot of this is like you you just, you don't get to hold on. And it's Mm -hmm. awful that he doesn't get to be in control of the narrative of his own sexuality and that's really upsetting scene when it happens. Yes. But it's also a lesson that Simon really has to learn just to be able to like live. Yeah,
0: he has to learn to let go and be his true authentic self. Mm -hmm. Because if not, there ultimately is repercussions for everybody.
1: Yeah. And I also like how in the book, yes, he does interfere in his friend's life, particularly in Abby's life. But in the movie, he's much more overtly like messing with people to protect his secret. Whereas in the book, he just, he like he makes a series of choices that he wouldn't have made if Martin had put him in that position. But like Abby's never potentially in harm's way the way she is in the movie and he never sets leah up for the heartbreak scene because leah is just his friend in the book she's not absolutely in love with him in the movie i just realized we're talking about the movie a lot should we introduce the movie and just talk I about was them together
0: literally about to say it yeah okay. <laughs> okay
1: my name's simon for the most part my life is totally normal i have a family that i actually like and there's my friends we do everything friends do We drink way too much iced coffee gorging on carbs. So, I'm just like you, except I have one huge-ass secret. Nobody knows I'm gay. Have you seen the new post? About the closet of gay kid at school. What? Who do you think it is?
0: Can I call you back? Dear Blue, I'm just like you. (gasps) This was a mistake. Sometimes I think I'm destined to care so much about one person, it nearly kills me.
1: Me too. I'm done living in a world where I don't get to be who I am. I deserve a great love story. And I want someone to share it with. Have you ever been in love? I think so. These last few years, it's almost like I can feel you holding your breath.
0: I'm supposed to be the one that decides when and where and who knows. That's supposed to be my thing.
1: Disclaimer this is about to get romantic as F.
0: Right. So part of the reason that we're doing this episode this particular week is because this is actually the one year anniversary that Love, Simon, the film adaptation of Simon vs. the Homo Sapien Agenda came out. So it came out in 2018. As I mentioned earlier, it's directed by Greg Berlanti. People watch TV, you probably watched one of about 15 of his TV shows. He's a very prolific executive producer and writer. And he is also a very publicly out gay man. He's a husband and a father to I think at least one child. He has a history of making queer texts, so a number of the properties that he works on for TV have queer characters on them. In case you're wondering, he does almost all the DC shows on the CW, so oh. Arrow, The Flash, Supergirl, all of those are his. But he also got his start directing in the late 90s with a film called The Broken Hearts Club, which is about an intergenerational group of gay men in Los Angeles who play... It's either softball or baseball. And it's a sweet film. It's not entirely successful, but it got him a lot of cred as being able to make something that is overtly queer that still is palatable to a more mainstream audience because it's kind of Mm rom-com-ish. So the cast stars Nick Robinson, who people might recognize from Jurassic World, His parents are played by Jennifer Garner as the mom, Emily. Josh Duhamel as his dad, Jack.
1: They're both so perfect, by the way.
0: They're fantastic. They're
1: so good.
0: Leah, as you mentioned, is played by an incredibly attractive, skinny white girl named Catherine Langford, who most people will likely recognize from 13 Reasons Why. Yep. Abby is played by Alexandra Shipp, who people might recognize from the X-Men films. She plays Storm. Oh. Martin is a repeat guest.
1: I was gonna tell you I actually recognized a repeat guest.
0: Oh, ah, okay. <laughs> I'm so so proud Brenna. Of what is Logan Miller from?
1: Logan Miller was in Before I Fall.
0: He was playing a very different <laughs> kind of character though.
1: He was. He was likable in that movie.
0: Yeah, he was the love interest.
1: I find him a lot in this movie.
0: Yeah, he that is a polite way to say it, yes. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And Bram is played by Keenan Lonsdale, and he's actually tied to Greg Berlanti in that he is Kid Flash from The Flash, as well oh. as the Legends of Tomorrow. And your fun fact with the actor is that as a result of playing Bram in the film, he came out as bisexual in real life. Oh. Yeah. And then Nick is played by George Lindenberg Jr. He's actually, I find, the least recognizable and kind of the least impactful of the cast.
1: And then there's Tony Hale as the principal.
0: Oh, yes, which is a new character that was introduced for the film. And then Miss Albright, who has a larger role in the book than she does in the movie The Drama Teacher. She's played by Natasha Rothwell, and she's, I believe she's on Insecure. Mm. Yes, and she's hysterical on that show. So imagine her character only with much more profane language, and you've got her character from Insecure.
1: And the only other character I want to mention is, and just because Catherine Langford is the main character in 13 Reasons Why, uh, or the female lead in 13 Reasons Why, one of the other kids in the chorus, the one who plays the piano who Simon thinks might be blue but isn't. Cal. Cal. He is also played by someone who is on that show.
0: Yes. Miles Hazer? I don't know.
1: Something like that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. He's the subject of the terrible acts of season 2 of 13 Reasons Why, which we will yeah. maybe talk about one day if I can bring myself to not smash every television screen in sight.
1: I've said this to Joe before, and I'm sure at some point we will actually get up the nerve to deal with 13 Reasons Why, but that particular hour of television that he is referring to is, I am pretty sure, the only hour of television that I've ever watched and thought, not just I don't like this, but this is actively harming people.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do think we should do it one day because I think, I mean, there's so much to say, but to me, it's also the reason why you should think about not just the the damage or the benefit that you can do with a text, Mm. but also why there's an argument to be made for containing a text into a certain form. So choosing it as a film or a TV show or a limited series Mm -hmm. as opposed to a ongoing
1: there should never have been a season two. Anyway. There shouldn't
0: have been a season two. Okay, uh, <laughs> we're talking about Love, Simon.
1: Yes, which is good and not horrible. Yay. Yes,
0: it's a good film adaptation. It does change a couple of big things.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm just going to quickly address a couple of some of the big changes.
1: Can I interject and complain about them as we go?
0: Absolutely, yes. <laughs> Consider this an ongoing process. Yay. Okay, so in the film... Martin is not introduced as a blackmailer until later, so really our introduction is to Simon, and then Mm. we see him begin to correspond with Blue, and then at that point, after they've exchanged a number of different emails, then the blackmail angle is introduced. And I can understand why the decision was made to introduce us to Simon, as opposed to just throwing us into the water and saying like, hi, we're opening this film with blackmail, but... For me, the first time I watched the film, I was like, where is this coming from? I thought this movie was about this gay teen romance. And the blackmail felt really off-putting.
1: Yeah, I
0: agree. I did not care for it as much.
1: No, I think it works well in the film because— or, sorry, I think it works well in the book because of the fact that Simon never alters his inherent character. Like as a person, he does things he wouldn't have done, but he doesn't harm his friends. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the film version, he breaks character to do Martin's bidding in a way that I never 100% believe. And I'm not sure if I don't 100% believe it because I have read the book or if I don't 100% believe it because it's not 100% believable, but I don't find it to be a useful way of approaching what is a pretty nuanced and complicated like moral issue for Simon in the book.
0: I remember not having difficulty with it when I watched the film and had not yet read the book.
1: Okay, interesting.
0: I didn't like it per se. I think that the film does a good job of establishing that the Simon that we know and the Simon who's communicating with Blue would not do these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And that he feels he is being forced, like his back is against the wall and he Mm -hmm. has no choice, even though as an adult or someone, you know, with morals and ethics, (laughs) as we're watching it, we're thinking, Simon, no, you know that this is not right.
1: Yeah. So
0: what we're referring to is he really goes the extra end in the film to separate Nick and Abby, who are clearly building towards a relationship. And then he also encourages Leah to pursue Nick, despite the fact that he knows that she has no chance with him. Although rewatching the film, it was interesting to see that Simon seems to think that Leah does actually have feelings for Nick.
1: Oh, he does. That's why I think that's worse. (laughs) Because he knows it's not going to be successful, right? He's just trying to buy himself some time with Abby away from Nick.
0: Yeah, but I remember the first time thinking that he was just very obtuse because it seemed so obvious to me that she has feelings for Simon. Mm. And I was like, oh, he's just a bit of a... He's just a bit dumb. Like he's not paying attention to the signs that his friend is showing him. And then he mistakenly pawns her off as, yes, a way to buy himself a little bit more time. Whereas the second go around, I was just like, does he actually believe this? Like how malicious is that? Because to Mm me... That is actually one of the big things that doesn't work all that well in the film is mm-hmm. the introduction of Leah as a romantic pawn in this yeah. scheme. Like, I don't feel that it contributes anything to the film to have her no. be in love with Simon. In no. fact, it's so tropey that it—it's so me.
1: tropey. I don't understand why it's there because one of the things that I like so much about the book is that there is like a constructed triangle because Martin inserts himself, but like there's no expected or organic triangle, particularly not around the protagonist, which, mm-hmm. as we've talked about on this show, is exhausting. <laughs> yes. And so it's nice to not have that in the book. The other thing too is that her personality, Leah's personality, is entirely changed because of that, right? God,
0: she's so boring.
1: She's so boring, right? In the book she's so funny.
0: Yeah, book Leah is kind of cutting through a lot of the tension. She's Mm -hmm. adding a certain amount of comedic Mm -hmm. elements to it. But also she's the one who calls Simon on his shit.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And that's a really important role because the whole point of the book is helping Simon to realize that he's in his head and he needs to come out of that and stop living in this fake imagined world. He's very Laura Jane. the more that I'm talking about it. Sorry, Laura Jean.
1: He is. Yeah, he is.
0: Sorry, that's a callback. To all the
1: boys I loved before. Thank you. You're welcome.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but I really did feel like something was lost. I feel like if you watch the movie and you haven't read the book, it won't bother you all that much. No, it does. I don't think so either. But having just finished the book and then rewatching the movie, I was like, this character has really just been watered down. And I don't understand, you know, often— I feel like I'm justifying creative decisions made on behalf of the film. And yeah. I feel like there's two plot lines that are deliberately added into the film. This one and the character of Ethan. And I don't feel like either one of them are wholly successful.
1: Tell us about Ethan because I forget what you're talking about. And I just <laughs> okay. watched it last night.
0: So in the book there are more or less two oh, queer characters Ethan! that we know of. And then there's Cal right. who is bisexual okay. working on the play. In the film, we have Bram, we have Simon, and then Cal is actually non-confirmed. He's just— This is the kid from 13 Reasons Why. He's potentially something. He seems supportive, but there's no effort made to clarify that.
1: No, he's basically just kind.
0: Yeah, which is nice. Yeah, And then there's another out— queer kid named Ethan. So Ethan is more feminine. Ethan is a person of color. And it's clarified that Ethan has been out for several years. He's best friends with the clicky kind of blonde girls. Yep. And he's the one who gets a lot of homophobia directed towards him. But he claps back. He's very witty. He doesn't take shit. Mm -hmm. But he gets kind of pulled into the narrative in a more significant way when Martin outs Simon. And then Mm -hmm. both Ethan and Simon are targeted for a very like stupidly juvenile display in the cafeteria where two boys say that, oh, now that these two gay guys are out, That these two gay guys are going to hook up now. Yeah. And there's an interesting conversation between Simon and Ethan outside of the vice principal's office where they have a very quick kind of back and forth where Ethan says, you know, you could have told me. And Simon says, like, he makes excuses. But the character of Ethan, who is wholly created for the film, at Greg Berlanti's insistence, in an attempt to show the different types of gay identities... To me, the problem is not that Ethan is there or that he's effeminate. It's that he's there, but there isn't enough of him.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And honestly, okay, can I climb on my soapbox for two minutes? I feel like I've been talking for five.
1: I'm happy when you're on your soapbox. Go for it. Okay. Get him, Joe.
0: My biggest problem was with Love, Simon, and if we ever do... Boy Erased, I will make the exact same statement, is that these are idealistic fantasy narratives about privileged white boys who have a support system behind them. Mm -hmm. It doesn't diminish the fact that they go through difficult things, obviously more so in Boy Erased than in this film. You know, no one should be publicly outed, no one should have to go to gay conversion therapy camps, but at the end of the day, both Simon and the character from Boy Erased have a family that they can fall back on. They have a Mm -hmm. home that they can fall back on. They Mm -hmm. have money, they have cars, they have clothes, they have computers, all of these things, and it's a very particular kind of narrative. Mm -hmm. Now, one side says Love, Simon is a narrative that has literally never been made before. There's Mm -hmm. never been a gay teen romance ever before Mm -hmm. this film. Mm -hmm. sorry that's been released in a mainstream capacity yeah
1: like with a big push behind it with a lot of marketing with a popular book tie-in with like shelf space taken up with simon's face as something to look at and know what he's there to represent
0: Mm -hmm. and that is incredibly important and the response from queer kids closeted kids kids from places in the country and the world where being gay is dangerous or they could be kicked out or they could be murdered. You know, the responses have been that this movie helped them to understand that there can be a life and that they can love and that they might be accepted. And that is beyond important. Mm -hmm. So far be it from me to poo-poo on this film because the film is doing an essential service. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Now, with that said, it's also still telling this white idealized privileged perspective Mm -hmm. so to introduce Ethan into the mix I applaud Greg Berlanti's efforts to say there's multiple different forms of being gay but you've got this more traditional character who is obviously living a harder existence than Mm -hmm. Simon and to give him so little screen time and to make this story about the white preppy kid with the perfect parents it's really frustrating because part of me was like I almost would rather see Ethan's story.
1: Well, my frustration with the way Ethan is handled is, well, similar to what you're saying, there's not enough of him. E to me, is a little bit of inspiration porn in an uncomfortable way. Like what little we know about him is that we know that his mom is in denial about his sexuality Mm -hmm. and that his extended family is incredibly religious and that he doesn't get to be out in those contexts. So that's all we know about him. But all we see of him is him being the much stronger of the two, right, mm-hmm. between him and Simon. Like he, yeah, he does clap back. He has funny comebacks. He
0: He's out. He's proud.
1: He's yep. out. He's proud. He has a strong female-centered support network at the school, but we never see the consequences of the bullying on him. Mm-hmm. And obviously he's been, he's had a lot more of it. And there's a line that Simon has in the film that I don't know that book simon would say he says that he thinks that ethan could make life easier on himself if he did wasn't so himself basically yes. and that to me is all really troubling because ultimately what it comes down to is that ethan exists to be the strong pillar against which simon's reactions are measured rather than ever interrogating the much more complex and difficult waters he's navigating within his family situation or mm. what it means to be so effeminate in a con, in a high school context. All that kind of stuff gets lost.
0: Yeah. It's very interesting though because there's obviously been a deliberate decision by both Becky Albertalli as well as Greg Berlenti to make Simon's eventual love interest a black gay character who black is also religious. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. far be it from me to say, oh, well, there are all these interesting possibilities to, like, explore these kind of nuanced elements.
1: I mean, that's literally what literary criticism is, Joe.
0: <laughs> I know. It's more, I think the film is doing really important work about telling A gay romance and Mm -hmm. it's really echoing some of the criticisms that I had about the film version of To All the Boys I've Loved Before where Mm -hmm. it could have done some really interesting heavy lifting yeah yeah these film adaptations that unfortunately have to undercut some of that really deep meaty sometimes problematic investigations about socially constructed racially constructed sexually constructed norms so that they can be just a little bit more accessible
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I don't know, like it made me wish. I watched the movie, I still really like it, and I think it's it's really charming. Yeah, but I just— It's genuinely charming. Like I almost wished that Greg Berlanti had not put the character in so that I could have just said, well, you know what, yeah, it is white, milk people, and that's what it is.
1: Yeah, I think for me, if we're echoing back, our criticisms of To All the Boys I've Loved Before and for Dumplin', one of the things I've been trying to remind myself of lately is that one of the things that hegemonic culture does is it says like, okay, well, this is the one gay movie and this is the one fat girl movie and this is the one Asian love story and we don't get to have any others. And so I'm trying to train myself as a critic to not demand that that single text do everything because that's playing into the game that hegemonic culture wants from me, right? Right. To say like, okay, well, we're only going to have this one so it needs to be perfect. yeah Representations of other lives and other stories need space to fail sometimes, too, and we don't give them that in culture. So no, I, try to be recon- I try to be cognizant of that, but at the same time I am sad when what I know is probably going to be the only one of something for a while, it doesn't do everything I need it to do. And in the case of Dumplin' and in the case of Love, Simon, and in the case of To All the Boys I've Loved Before, The books challenge far more of the social norms or they go deeper into, they go deeper into the aspects of culture that they feel capable of challenging than the films are able to do. And I think that's just, I mean, that's just part of trying to make popular cinema as opposed to a best-selling book, right? It's not going to have the same reach and so it doesn't have the same responsibility.
0: And I mean, if we're being honest, too, you know, me about numbers, the financial risk yeah. associated with a film, even something Huge. that's made for Netflix, it's outrageously higher. Yeah. Like, you know, Becky Albertini had the luxury, uh, in quotation, damn it, <laughs> Becky Albertalli had the luxury of writing this book the way she wanted to write it, and then yeah. I'm sure she had to edit it and make changes to get it into a publishing ready mode but at the end of the day it didn't cost her 17 million dollars which is what this movie cost to make right which is small but at the end of the day it's also like okay yeah you get one shot to make this gay love story and it better make a return on investment or else all of hollywood gets to say oh well there's no market for these films because they're too Mm -hmm. niche
1: Mm -hmm. mm-hmm mm-hmm
0: to be honest, I'm actually very interested. Now that we know that the sequel to All the Boys I've Loved Before is going ahead, mm-hmm. I'm very interested to see because all of a sudden, I mean, again, not fair to expect the same text and its sequel to do everything, <laughs> but I'm interested to see if they will be given more of a carte blanche to do some interesting things that maybe the first book couldn't do.
1: I'm hoping with each of these texts, success will breed some confidence. Again, I come back to my disappointment in the casting of Leah here because— I think that post Dumplin' and post Love, Simon, I would have loved to see that version of Leah on the offbeat. Mm -hmm. Like I would have loved to see a fat girl bisexual story that didn't have to be the first one of its kind, you know? yeah. And that is not yet the case. Like I just don't, I don't think it'll ever get made after Love, Simon because of the choices that were made around Leah's character. But I mean, what do I know?
0: Yeah, there'd be some weird politics that would have to go into it because you'd either have to shrink the character,
1: which just don't bother.
0: Yeah, like like right off the bat, like no. No thank you. Or what? Recast? Yeah. Which is also a potential.
1: Yeah, I mean, and especially if they did it in a totally different format, right? Like if it was a if it was a limited series on Netflix or something as opposed to like a film by the same people, but like I know that from reading a couple of interviews Lots of people have already asked Catherine Langford, would you be Leah in a filming of the movie? And she's like, yeah, absolutely. Which leads me to be like, did you read the book, Catherine Langford? Because I don't think you've read the book. She's from Australia, you know. They they don't have books in Australia?
0: (laughs) They have to read them backwards. It's like the way that the toilet flushes.
1: (laughs) Speaking of irate listener mail, um, (laughs) can I request something from our American listeners?
0: Sure, because apparently we have more of them than Canadian listeners or from other places now. So I
1: just saw that. Okay, I need to know. Okay, so there are certain categories of things that I have just seen all my life in television that until I was like 20, I thought that they were things that just happened on TV that Americans couldn't possibly do in real life. The one I always come back to is wearing your shoes inside the house. Oh
0: yeah, that is an American thing.
1: I didn't find out until I was like 20. I just thought it was like a TV thing, like sitting on one side of the dining table, you know? Like, which then I see people do that in restaurants and that freaks me right out. Look at each other. Anyway, <laughs> um, the, the whole thing with like the giant suite-style children's rooms.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: These keep recurring in these film adaptations and I've never seen anything like it in real life and I want to know if they're a thing.
0: I wonder if maybe we're thinking Atlanta, where the house porn is just that much
1: better. Yeah, maybe.
0: And they've got like bigger square acreages to work with or something.
1: I mean, that room, Simon's room is like— So big. Simon's room might be bigger than my apartment.
0: <laughs>
1: I mean, I know I live in Vancouver, but still.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's, let's talk about Simon's home life and oh, his yeah. relationship with privilege, for lack mm. of a better term.
1: He's super wealthy and he's way wealthier. They, I think they've done this in every single text we've looked at, right? They really wealth it up for the film. Like he's not destitute by any stretch of the imagination in the book, but they're like, you know, comfortably middle class in the book. Mm-hmm. In the film, they live in this house. They only have two kids. They kill off one of the kids in the films. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Clarification. The child is not dead. <laughs> the child has been excluded from the adaptation. So Alice does not make the cut. <laughs> And Nora is de-aged.
1: I read an interview with um, Becky Albertelli where she says that Alice just went to school really far away and couldn't come back for the movie. So they only have two kids. They live in this palatial house. Mm -hmm. Simon's room has a balcony. It's big enough that he has a bed for himself in this like nook. Then there's like this couch daybed thing that Leah sleeps on. Mm -hmm. Then there's like this whole desk massive desk set up then he's got like all this other space for accoutrements it's the biggest bedroom and like the whole house is like showroom style and it's funny because like yes his mom's a psychologist and psychologists make a decent wage but like we have no idea what his father does for a living No. Presumably something that
0: makes a lot of money, because the film also opens with him getting his own car.
1: Yeah. And I mean it's not like he gets a Lexus or something. It's a Subaru wagon, but like it's a good, nice car. And one thing that I did, one small detail that I like that they kept is that Abby lives in an apartment, so like Abby's not as wealthy as the others, but Nick and Leah, unlike in the book where there are some class issues that get explored a lot more in Leah on the offbeat, in the film they all live in these enormous palatial suburban houses
0: we never see the inside of any of, any of the other houses do we
1: when he goes to pick them all up from school like we see the outsides of their houses and the yes. lots that they're on no but yeah. you're right we never see inside except i guess bram's house which again Bram's house from the halloween party mm. is like
0: oh yeah that pool and... yeah! yeah yeah
1: that's before i fall level house porn that one
0: indeed yes yeah that could have been the same party <laughs>
1: It's true. Anyway, all I'm asking is that if our American listeners could tell me if teenagers having sweets is like a normal thing, I would really like to know, die to know. And balconies. Yeah. I Did mean... you grow up in a house where your bedroom had a balcony? Hashtag yeah. HKHS pod.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so talk to me about these parents, though.
1: I love them in both contexts. I mean, Jennifer Garner is the perfect cinnamon bun, so I love her <laughs> in everything.
0: What a cute description. <laughs>
1: But she is, oh my goodness. Do yourself a favor and follow that woman on Facebook. Mm. She posts the sweetest videos. Like I don't even follow her as an actress. I just think as a human being she's charming. Anyway, so they're really great in the film. In the book they get a little bit more flesh, obviously. Parents get a little bit more attention in every one of these books, it seems like. And I think there's a particularly interesting dynamic with the fact that Simon's mother is a psychologist. She knows all the right things to say, but she feels a certain amount of Guilt is probably too strong a word, but at it's having like missed it. like mom guilt, though, isn't it? Yeah, because she's missed it, right? She's like a psychologist. She should know what's going on with her kid. She feels like, I'm not, this is not me putting blame on her. And she doesn't, and so I think there's a little bit of guilt around there. Mm-hmm. His dad, as I said off the top, has this much more interesting arc where he goes from being like a typical jockey, dude, hipster dad kind of guy who makes a lot of homophobic jokes, who's like And not mean-spirited ones, just the kind of casual homophobia that is part of like patriarchal culture. He's just imbued in that and he's not a bad guy. He's making the same mistakes a lot of other dads are making. Yep.
0: My dad included.
1: (laughs) But what he learns over the course of the narrative is how to be a good dad to the kid that he has. And the film, I mean, Josh Duhamel's scene where he like breaks down over this is really, really Good. That's a really good scene in the film. Really effectively done.
0: So I've got an interesting story about that. No? So I just watched this with a couple of friends and one of them hadn't seen it before, and then I'd seen it. So we were watching it and throughout most of the film we were kinda like laughing a little bit, poking fun at certain things, just enjoying the film generally. And then when we got to the scenes with each of the parents just absolute dead silence it's like you could mm. hear a pin drop mm. and let's just say that it got a little dusty in my apartment <laughs> because all of a sudden it was <laughs> very sniffly and my eyes were so damp and yeah. so I agree with you that I think Josh Duhamel is really great and that scene is well played and apparently it was always in the script the scene with Jennifer Garner was actually put in at her insistence. So it was oh. not originally in there. And it's really intriguing to me because when I talk to any gay man who saw the film and likes the film, that scene where she says, oh. "You get to breathe now." Um that's oh, the scene. True. That's the scene that gets everybody.
1: Oh. It is Cuz that's um... what we
0: want. That's what we want from our parents and I mean it is. It's pure fantasy because a lot of people don't get that and even sometimes the best coming out stories don't get it.
1: Sometimes it's just the gift of having that language, right? Like if you've that description, if you've ever held onto a secret like, mm-hmm. and finally been able to let it go, but that times it's your entire identity, right? Or right. it's a huge yeah. component of your identity. But also in that scene where she's saying to him like, You get to be more you. Like he's been worried that telling people about himself is going to change who he is. And she's like, no, you get to be all of you. Like you get to be more of you. And like turning that around so that it goes from being a, a fear of lack or a fear of loss into like a celebration of what could happen next. It's quite lovely.
0: It's amazing. I mean, she just nails that scene, too. Like, it's so good. I was watching and trying to figure out how Nick, the actor who plays Simon, doesn't get emotionally overwhelmed by it.
1: I was watching that scene and I was like, I don't know when she turned into such a great on-screen mom. Like, I'm Mm -hmm. old enough to remember—
0: Her Uh, alias Jennifer
1: Gunner. In her pre mom roles, but she's, she's so good at playing a parent. It's also interesting, too, the family dynamic because Simon's parents were high school sweethearts. They've always been together and only have ever been together. And so there's a certain amount of, I don't know, the heterosexual matrix ideal, right? That Simon has been born into and that now is. Contravening mm-hmm. even with the most supportive parents in the world. He has this sense of Expectation that's built into their relationship, too. Yeah. I think that he's Struggling against is too strong a word, but he's very aware of it Like he tells us several times what a kind of ideal marriage his parents have, right? Yeah,
0: which is funny because isn't that the arc of your relationship?
1: <laughs> it's true. Yeah, <laughs> it is true. I am but a pawn in the heterosexual matrix.
0: I can't wait for baby Groot to grow up and talk about how perfect his family is.
1: I hope he does it on a podcast.
0: <laughs> <laughs> or whatever form the medium takes in
1: 20 years. They'll just, just inject a syringe full of jokes into your bloodstream.
0: Right. Ooh, That's it's like my Divergent. Science fiction movie.
1: <laughs> oh, speaking of which, <laughs> um, can we do bingo before we look ahead to next week?
0: Absolutely. Unless there's anything else that you wanted to talk about. If we want to talk about the Whitney Houston montage, if we want to talk about (laughs) the coming out montage.
1: I will say that I think one thing that the film does really, really well is the Well, exactly those sequences, the sort of dream sequences, fantasy sequences. They're quite lovely and they're quite evocative and effective and I really like the way they stand as a reminder to us that this is in fact Simon's fantasy world and not the real world. So the example that I'm thinking of is when he imagines the montage of all his straight friends having to come out as straight Mm -hmm. but so he imagines leah saying oh i'm straight and i'm in love with nick and we as viewers know that in this version of the story she's not at all in love with nick Mm -hmm. and so it's a good reminder to us that this is the way simon views the world because sometimes those dream sequences in movies can feel like you're supposed to believe that that is also part of the narrative whereas the filmmakers are very careful in making it Clear, yeah. which I liked, this and I love and I loved when he goes to university and becomes super gay. That's very funny scene.
0: <sighs> I like it, but I and it, it rubs me just the wrong way. In the same way that the Ethan stuff does, where sure he embraces it, and then he's like, mm, maybe not that gay, and I'm like, why not that gay? Why
1: not that gay? Yeah, and it is very much. I mean.
0: Again, he's a character. He's not meant to be symbolic of all, but part of me is like, you have this opportunity with this movie Mm. to be like, if that is the Simon who is 100% real to himself and that's who he is when he goes off to college, why not?
1: That's allowed to. I will will fully cop to the fact that I think that that scene is there for— well-meaning heterosexual allies like myself to enjoy, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like it's like, yeah, "Yeah, you're empowered Simon, we're having fun, this is a dance, but it's not really like there's no stakes in the identity of it for me or for Simon, which I think is probably the problem with it as a montage, but it sure is fun to watch.
0: It is, yes. It's very well executed, which I would say for both the film and the book. Just so highly enjoyable, just such pleasure to consume.
1: Yes. And we I've had a lot of really Like we have had a string of either difficult or bad texts. (laughs) (laughs) Like we have, right? Even I mean, I adore Persepolis, but that was a challenging read and it's a challenging watch and it's Mm. heavy content. And so it was really nice to read something with an unambiguously happy ending that was also just incredibly carefully executed and pleasurable to read.
0: Yeah. If people need a pick-me-up, I would say, honestly, read any of Becky Albertalli's books.
1: Yeah, or all of them. Yeah. (laughs) I know I will. I stand for you, Albertalli. Um, bingo. 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 Bingo! Not a good bingo. You want to go first?
0: Okay, so I think we've got a couple of obvious ones. We've got The Ideal Parents. Mm -hmm. We have The House Porn. Mm -hmm. and we have rich people problems
1: i was gonna Rich people problems was totally gonna be mine um and yeah
0: do you have other ones
1: no i was gonna go with rich people problems and perfect parents so
0: okay there is one other one that i only discovered because it's in the research
1: oh oh author cameo
0: yes yes
1: She's at the Halloween party.
0: Yeah, so it's apparently her, Angie Thomas, and Adam Silvera are all at that Halloween party. And you shouldn't be able to identify them because they were very carefully disguised because (laughs) these adult writers are not teenagers.
1: (laughs) If you, like I did, read the deluxe special edition of the Mm -hmm. book... (laughs) because I always end up reading the deluxe special editions of the books. There's an interview at the end with all three of them, which, by the way, oh, I just want to hang out with all three of them. Right? All I could think about was,
0: like, how much would I want to go to lunch with these three people?
1: they're so great and they're so supportive of each other's careers in a way that really just makes me well up. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But yeah, so there's an interview with them that talks about being on set and filming and stuff and actually the extended version also has a series of additional letters between Simon and Blue, like the first few letters they wrote to each other, which were also charming to read because Becky Albertelli is perfect in every way.
0: Yeah. The Mm -hmm. other interesting thing that I got from that extended edition is that they deliberately cast a lot of the background actors for the film, who are either trans, queer, by? They tried to populate as many of the background actors with diverse people as a bit of a subtle cue to say, like, Simon's actually more surrounded by people than he mm, realizes. Than he
1: realizes.
0: And I really noticed it when I was looking for it. But mm-hmm. it's very subtle that if you don't look for it, you, you won't really notice it.
1: Mm-hmm. And also give trans and queer actors work.
0: Mm-hmm. Employ them. Yeah. I can't wait until we get to talk about a trans narrative on this yeah. that hopefully doesn't end in some kind of terrible tragedy. But even yeah. as of right now, I don't know that we even have one on the list.
1: I don't think we do at the moment. There's a couple that I think might be in production, but none that I think I can think of that are out yet.
0: If people can think of some, yeah, let us, let us know. know. <laughs> Remember,
1: it has to have an adaptation. This is where we always fall down, yes. the adaptation parts.
0: A lot of good books and still waiting on those
1: movies. So, um, not speaking of good books, next week.
0: <laughs> no, no, do the, the stuff first.
1: Oh, okay. Um, so, <laughs> so, uh, Joe, where can people find you on the Twitter if they want to tell you how great Becky Albertalli is?
0: You can find me at B stole my remote. That's the letter B. And what about you?
1: I'm at Brenna C Gray. That's Gray with an A. And you can always use the hashtag HKHSPod to find us. I like to troll it to see who's telling me my laugh is fun.
0: It's true. And we've actually started (laughs) to get a couple of people interacting with us, which is great. So we'd love for that to continue. Yes. As we said, do answer Brenna's question. Do let us know if you think of other texts that we should be tackling. We did get a couple of requests and we're going to try to incorporate them in the near future. So if you addressed it to us, don't feel like we've forgotten it. We do have some plans in the works. If you want to send us a longer email, you can send it to hkhspod at gmail.com. But uh, yeah, so you mentioned that this was a reprieve. And unfortunately, (sighs) we are headed back out into the wastelands next week, aren't we?
1: Next week, we are talking about Veronica Roth's Divergent, which was very, very popular and made a lot of money and which is totally fine and we will have some interesting things to say about it as soon as we think of what they are. <laughs> I like to really sell the next episode of the podcast, just Very I'm fair. just I'm messing around. But Divergent was huge. It was massive yeah. and we haven't tackled I don't think we've tackled anything of that scale yet, have we?
0: Really? No. Not, not in this side of the YA lit.
1: Yeah. So we're going to be talking about obviously Divergent and its film adaptation and, you know, we'll get into some of maybe the authors a little bit problematic mm-hmm. maybe we'll have to talk about that a little bit too Yeah. so that's where we're heading next and as always thanks for listening and please do get in touch with us and uh until divergent i'll see you on the page
0: and i'll see you on the screen